this is our aspiration for our city. Look at what other cities have done. We can do that here. Or this is a whole new idea that no other place has done. Let's try to be a leader and do this here. Welcome to Infill, where we chat housing politics and policy. I'm Laura Foote from Yimby Action, and today we have two fantastic new employees at our affiliated nonprofit, Yes in My Backyard, um, also known as Yimby Law, Jess and John. I am so excited that we have these incredible organizers joining the team to especially focus on housing elements. And we talked about that on the last episode. This is going to be really important work happening across the state of California. But John, Tell us a little bit about your background and, and why you said yes to working in this madhouse. Yeah, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. It's really exciting to get the word out about our, our work on housing elements. I wanted to work for Yimby Law because locally I have been in, engaged in housing elements and permitting and affordable housing uh, for several years and then joined my local city council and, and have seen how these policies play out uh, when we get these proposals for, for new development and just what it looks like when someone can say, yeah, I've met the 20% inclusionary zoning requirement, but because because of this law and that law and the other law, I'm actually really going to provide 10% of the units I'm supposed to because of this trade-off and affordability that some council in prior years thought was a great idea. And it's just so critical that that we create these new opportunities for, for housing because our communities are growing and our cities are not. And that creates a mismatch and, and a disparity that causes real harm. So I'm just so excited to, to join Yimby and create more awareness and, and energy behind this movement. So one thing that I think is pretty fun, you know, you sit on a city council that's been relatively pro-housing, and now you're going to go around and kind of say yes in everybody else's backyard. (laughs) And I don't know how comfortable, you know, like, what's that like? Do you want to go there? It's going to be more like, yes, in your backyard too, and not (laughs) only in your backyard. And I think that we have the opportunity as members of Yimby to show instead of tell. And so it helps that the people who came before me made our city more receptive to housing because then it looks and feels like I'm leading from the front instead of just, you know, pointing at people and saying, you know, you need to get your metaphorical house in order by building (laughs) more homes. So yeah, it is a little bit of a strange uh, dichotomy, but at the same time, it's created opportunities for me to have those conversations with people that, you know, otherwise I may not be able to have. Yeah. And I'm excited that you're going to bring the implementation. And and a lot of times city council members will, you know, say back to us, well, you just don't understand. And then they'll say whatever else. And now we've got a city councilor member who I can say, "Oh, oh, we deeply understand. Yeah, you're adding authenticity and, and legitimacy to those parts of the of the work where people can sort of find that niche of, well, this doesn't apply to me, um, you know. <laughs> and it's great. I mean, my counterpart Jess, who you know is on with us, she's she knows about planning and and has worked for the government and uh, knows all those things intimately. So whether it's you know professional people in city hall or city council members or community organizers, we've got a little bit of something for everybody, and you know we've been there too. Yeah, Jess, you have worked as a community organizer. You've worked as a planner. Tell us a little more about your background. 
Yeah, I'm a I'm an urban planner based in Los Angeles. I got my master's of urban regional planning from UCLA and then from there worked for the city of Los Angeles in their planning department, worked as a land use consultant, um, helping projects kind of navigate the city processes and state policies. Um, and then I've worked as a community organizer for the urban agriculture community in LA. So I love to dabble and this is just a continuation of that. It was a major red flag for us. Let me just we had <laughs> first thing you asked me about that was question one was do you feel like there'd be a conflict with urban agriculture and housing and I was like oh this is a this is a great start to this, this interview <laughs> they're not necessarily a conflict if you're the kind of person who genuinely believes that there doesn't have to be a conflict but that's right you know. I and a part of it is is using public resources that are in the city to the best effect to support human life in our communities and Sometimes that means using a bit of land for growing food. And sometimes that means using a bit of land to provide a home for someone. So I'm definitely not a every bit of land in the city has to be used for growing food. Definitely not. I just think that being connected to your food system, providing a multiplicity of ways to get food, especially in low access neighborhoods, should include the opportunity to grow food in the city, um, what we call urban agriculture. And I think we should be using public resources to do that. However, housing, you know, when I started school, I quickly realized I came to, to planning school because I was a bike advocate and I loved the bike community in New York and was hoping to see um, some of the same changes ha happen in Los Angeles. But I quickly kind of, you know, just in learning about all the facets of urban planning, realized that housing was one of the biggest challenges of our time and that policies that have been implemented in the past several decades have really put us at a disadvantage and have created a completely different housing market for me than, you know, my grandmother and grandfather faced when they immigrated to LA in the 40s. They, you know, were able to buy a house and have five children and have like a one person working class earner in their household. And that just, you know, not only wasn't an option for me as a professional, but wasn't an option for a lot of my friends, much less people who weren't, who didn't have the privilege of going to college. So I just felt like this is a hundred percent a worthy field for me to stick my shovel in the ground. <laughs> I, yeah. I, you answered the question quite well, which brings us to here today. I think another point you made during that meeting was that a driving force is efficient use of land, that the empty wasted lot is not something that should happen in a vibrant city where we should be squeezing every resource out of it, whether that's housing or something else, um, which I thought was a really nice metaphor. And I love now that we have two people who come from, in some ways, people who are often on the other side of the aisle. You have disingenuous people who say, don't cast a shadow on my zucchini garden. And you have disingenuous city council members saying, we can't possibly build housing here. Um, and now our housing elements coordinators are people saying like, no, Oh, actually, we can do both. And we have to have whole communities and communities are better from, you know, thriving in multiple ways and by adding the housing that we need and that, you know, not having housing is just driving our communities into just chaos and, 
and crisis. 100%. So you two are going to be rallying a lot of Yimby Action members to get involved in their communities, to go investigate what's happening in the local housing element process. John, can you give us a sort of big picture? Why do we have housing elements? Why do we have all these acronyms? What is what is the point of all of this? That sounds like a master's thesis, but um, I guess the, the short of it would be it's a big state. And as our state has grown from this sort of agrarian slash coastal beach bum attitude into the economic powerhouse that it is, where those things still exist, but now they're no longer sort of the defining characteristic. The state had, and it's infinite wisdom, the, the idea that we should pay attention to the idea of housing and, and how, unlike a hobby, everybody needs somewhere to sleep at night. Everyone needs somewhere to live. And, you know, like any responsible sort of caretaker government, they created these rules, this bureaucracy around how we track that and, and make sure that we're not falling behind. Uh, unfortunately, as, as many complex government programs go, there was a lot of compromise and it took almost 50 years to give that chapter of law any teeth and consequences. And so as we have quarter million homeless children in the state of California, and as we have incredible spikes and homelessness when unprecedented pandemic, you know, a hundred years since the last time anybody experienced anything like this, these societal ills that are largely self-inflicted, self-made, there's renewed energy around, well, how do we prevent this from being the status quo? How do we, how do we interrupt this? And I think the best way that we in the pro-housing movement can do that is by latching on to this well-established body of law as our state legislators continue to increase it and, and empower the good actors to fight back against the NIMBYs and the bad actors and by increasing opportunities for housing. So the state is putting forth these big goal numbers, these big mandates, and where the rubber meets the road is local city councils implementing it. You have the regional governments say every city and town is going to have to meet these goals. And this is where it's fallen apart traditionally, is that the local city councils say, sure, 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 I'm going to try to hit those goals and come up with elaborate ways to convince the state government that they're trying, even when they're actually actively working to thwart those goals and it becomes a lot of a, a sort of a shell game. Just, you know, you guys are going to be organizing people to, to be these watchdogs and to sort of, you know, keep track of what are the cities doing? Is it real or are they deliberately thwarting the state housing goals? Do you have advice for all the housing element watchdogs of like, what are the things that you think we're going to need to keep an eye out for the most? Yeah, I think I'm so looking forward to this year and to connecting with the Housing Element Watchdogs, empowering them with resources, and just seeing the work that they do in their local cities. I think the big things that we're going to be kind of guiding, teaching people how to do when it comes to looking at their own city's housing elements, partly it's going to be methodology, especially for those math nerds out there. Um, we're going to have guides to sort of show how... With this current policy environment, this is how many accessory dwelling units or how many homes or how many low-income homes are going to be built, making sure that they're doing that methodology correctly and not taking shortcuts or not being overconfident in their estimations. So especially with our, our math friends, like that's going to be a great fit for them. We also want people to look at the policies and programs that the housing elements will be proposing. This is where a lot of that qualitative change 
can happen and where the human voices of the the housing element watchdogs can come into play and say this is this is our aspiration for our city look at what other cities have done we can do that here or this is a whole new idea that no other place has done let's try to be a leader and do this here again like there have been policies in the past that have been implemented that completely changed and shaped the way that our cities look now for the worse. (laughs) And so it takes that same human innovation and that same human idea to say, hey, like, let's do that differently so that we can have a fair housing market so that we can have places that people of various income levels can live without becoming completely impoverished. And we think that that's especially coming off of an economic downturn like we've seen, I think that's going to be a really good pitch for cities is like if people are being impoverished by their rents and their mortgages, they are not going to have the money to spend in town, in local businesses, going to schools, like all all of that lifeblood of money, like we cannot have that being funneled away into high rents. And we need to amend that. I mean, we need to amend it in many ways. Partly we need better wages for (laughs) workers, like that's a huge part of it. But that's not something the housing element can totally address. We have to work within the tools that we have. Every problem. Yeah, it would a lot of problems. Like, yeah, (laughs) come on, (laughs) employers. But this is a self-inflicted one. You know, this is like, you know, yes, part of the sort of overall, how do we rectify the situation where the next generation is increasingly poorer than the previous one? A key component of that is housing affordability. Totally. And and access to opportunity ties hugely into that. I mean, people not being able to move to places with jobs and opportunity is another thing that is downward pressure on wages. 100%. And if if you're the kind of person that questions, you know, why do we have to have rent restricted units? Why do we have to have units that are set aside for low income, very low income, etc? Well, just ask yourself, what what problem is that solving? The fact is, is that we have so many people in our communities that make that level of income, people that work in our schools, people that work in our hospitals, like people that are not just, (laughs) you know, like being lazy, it's they're they're working in our community communities, yet they can't afford a place to live in that community. And I think that's an injustice that I think is a a huge part of why John and I do the work that we're doing, why you do the work you're doing. Yeah. One thing that I think is going to be really interesting for this housing element conversation that's going to make it really different than the one 10 years before, and that the way that we talk about where should the housing go is going to be a really interesting conversation because previously it's been really dominated by shove the housing into the community of least resistance, which often meant low-income communities. And, and, you know, and there was a side goal of put it where you think it won't be built, but also put it in the places where people have the least access to political power. And there's a real opportunity for us to, to sort of push this like housing justice and fair housing elements where we're saying, okay, the market is saying to build in the communities of the most means. You know, the fact that if you're in a place where the average home value is $2.2 million, that is in fact the market telling you that there is a high demand for that area and we should be adding more units to that area. You know, there's all these sort of intersecting housing justice and market-oriented arguments that we need to be making. We're going to be having this conversation in Orange County, in Fresno, in Sacramento.
Sacramento, in suburbs that I don't know the name of. Every little city and town is going to be having these debates. You know, sometimes it's like people dress it up as like the transit corridors. And by that, they mean the street that no one wants to live on. And so how do we actually say, no, we need whole communities and we need equity and we need to add housing in the communities that have tried to wall themselves off the most. That's actually where we should be building housing because you want to live there and so do other people. To Jess's point earlier, and your point as well, for that matter, if we sort of silo the people, the newcomers to a city who need more housing to be built, if we silo them in either those less affluent parts of the city or in the, the suburbs and exurbs that are more working class neighborhoods, then the income that they have gets siphoned away with that rent. And the richer communities don't want to include new housing because they don't need it. Their, their folks have their homes paid off. They work at these tech companies or they have small businesses and they can afford their mortgages and their rents and they don't have any desire to diversify the type and affordability of housing in their communities. But what that does then is create a caste system where you import workers who can't afford to live in that community and you create the burden of providing for those workers who earn less in other communities. But then you just get into this loop where the people who make less but go work in the the Los Altos Hills and the rolling estates of these and those meadows, they can't afford to live in those places. So when they live outside of those areas, not only do they create the terrible climate, disastrous climate effects that we see statewide through these super commuter patterns, but the little money they do have gets siphoned off by sometimes the same people they serve who own those properties in those neighboring communities as investment vehicles. And so it just creates- Opportunity hoarding. I mean, and the school districts create these segregated schools. I mean, I talk about this a lot where part of- of the why local control is such a like toxic ideology right now for me that when you start with a pre-segregated society and then you say the people who are going to decide whether or not we build housing here are the people who have already bought into this community who maybe they're you know historically their family benefited from mortgages that were only available to white family you're just doubling down on all of this institutional racism because you're saying the people who live here currently are the ones who get the deciding vote on whether anyone else gets to join their community. And it's just becomes very toxic and ugly. You know, there's that great uh, public comment that we had at the Yimby Awards from, um, I think, Jake Schmidt, who said, you know, oh, we asked a bunch of really comfortable people if they would like new neighbors. And it turns out that they said no, because they already have housing. And it's like, yeah, like that is the way it often goes. The housing element is supposed to be, okay, you know, it's, it's not, you know, the the hammer of we're just not going to have single family home only zoning anymore that I want to see, right? I want to see that like hammer where we're just like, no, you don't get to do that anymore. But it is like the whole state needs everyone to build housing. And so now we're going to have a debate at the local level, not about whether you're going to build this housing, but where and how. And this is something that, you know, I think you all are going to be on the ground helping our local volunteers make sure that there's a lot of like compelling nuance and that it isn't this like, like, you know, housing, it's, it's who we are. It's where we live. It's how our communities are structured. It's a lot of about power dynamics. How do we make sure that like they can't defeat housing by making it incredibly boring is, is a thing that like we have to worry about. Yeah. The, the fact that this stuff can get tedious is like such a danger to keeping people engaged and, and wanting to care. 
I have a lot of theories about how technocratic language and these kinds of analyses are structured in such a way that it's not easily communicated to the public and there's no requirement for it to be understandable by the public. And so it's just like, oh yeah, this is, uh, I guess I have to use this kind of language. And uh... so there, you know, obviously there is a requirement for cities to diligently reach out to all sorts of sectors of their community so that they can get feedback on this housing element, which is like a very long, dry, technocratic document. (laughs) What a fun premise for any kind of sitcom. But yeah, like it's definitely a challenge, which is why I'm so grateful that Yimby Law kind of saw into the future and saw the need for us and brought John and I on to be a resource to the local watchdogs so that if they need technical assistance, you know, help reviewing their, their housing elements or understanding a certain section that were just an email away. But I do think it's something where you know, we're starting to see cities actually get a little bit more open, at least, you know, like doing more outreach meetings, doing creative outreach, being virtual on Zoom, which is, you know, a lot better than having a physical meeting that's just one day in time and not posted anywhere. You know, just I think that we're getting better sometimes. And it also just depends on the planners. I think the housing element requirements is this really great opportunity for for the state to be the strict parent, you know, the city can be the sort of other parent, like, oh, the state's telling us to do fair housing. <laughs> Got to do it. That's a way that they can push back against some of the local control that is wanting to keep things in a status quo pattern. But it's, yeah, it is one of the challenges is that this is really technical and it takes a little bit of, of an education for a local activist to kind of catch up and kind of figure out the language and figure out what's going on which is why we you know, really want to make a user-friendly tool for, for local activists. It's also why we're working so closely with organizations like Abundant Housing LA, and, and we're sort of forming this coalition for fair housing elements that I'm really excited about. We're going to have a coalition website and toolkits because it's going to be really important to pull in people who are you know active in other aspects. You know, everybody from like Yimby Democrats of San Diego up to, I'm trying to do like what's our furthest south to our furthest north. There's like some very passionate Marin Yimbys who I like can't wait to put in to their hands, this toolkit for, yeah. yeah. Well, and especially because, you know, in some places, especially like our most exclusionary suburbs, what I'm kind of excited about this is there are places where we have one passionate Yimby who's always like, what can I do? And my advice often is like, grow a community, start creating a club, start getting engaged with your local government. And, but like, you know, like when you're in a place where like getting those next five or 10 people is really hard, this is something that they, like, if you're just one person in a community, you actually can have a pretty big impact by tracking and and reporting, you know, to some degree, you're going to be the person who's like a little bit enforcing that the nanny state actually happens, that the state is saying to the local governments, actually, you know, somebody emailed me that you're not complying with any of this stuff. Um, You can have a really big impact as one person keeping track of all this stuff. John, you're nodding. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, Some of the feedback we've already gotten from state HCD, the Housing and Community Development Department, is why weren't you engaged sooner? Why are we hearing about this if you didn't go talk to the planning commission? Did you talk to the city council or the board of supervisors? How many community meetings did you participate in? And so while they are bound to take our comments and review them and address them, 
you know, the natural question is, did you try to go around them to try to the city to try to get them in trouble? Like, why didn't you participate? And for Jess and me, coincidentally, circumstantially, it's because we started our jobs a month ago. And so we didn't have the <laughs> opportunity to participate in March or June of last year. But that is a critical step in this process is that somebody, whether you're local or not, somebody participated before this was baked and delivered to the state. And whether you're the introvert who is just all about it, but doesn't really want to go make a club or you're that math geek or a tech person who can play with some numbers or manipulate data and you don't really have time to do the social stuff. You just want to crunch some numbers to kind of like take your mind off of work. All of those people are welcome in the MB movement and are desperately needed to help us achieve this goal of affirmatively furthering for housing and ending exclusionary segregationist planning that has permeated and infected our communities for decades and decades at a policy level, but of course, it's baked into the DNA of our country. And I think for the folks who are on the other side, who are more into the community organizing, I mean, housing is a stress for almost everybody that is like middle class and below. If you're not plugged into your a house that you've bought, you're probably stressed out by your housing costs. And so it's really great time right now to be able to form a coalition, even if you're in a, a small town, to be able to connect with the teachers at your local schools, the grocer, like the grocery clerks at the at the grocery store, the, the communities of faith, uh, especially in the low income parts of your town to find people who are stressed about housing. And you can kind of say like, we're having this process to update this housing policy. And, you know, as Yimbis, like we want housing costs to be more affordable. We want there to be more and better housing products in our town. Come join us. It's not a partisan issue. It's not, yeah, it's not a values thing. It's like, there's so many the Venn diagram is so vast of people who need the house, like really need the housing market to change. So it's, it's a great time to organize. Yeah. And I feel like this is the case where it's much easier. I think we always, whenever we're advocating for anything, it's very easy for people to say, you're an outsider, you know, you don't belong as part of this decision-making about our community. Um, It's like, okay, well, you've had decades of policies that ensured that I was an outsider and couldn't afford to live here. So fuck you. But also, (laughs) um, you know, I think that there is this, like the housing element process is a state driven process of of saying we are going to be making these decisions at a higher level of government. And yes, implementation is up to local governments a bit, but there are a lot of guardrails on that from the state that we're trying to make more and more serious and have to be done with you know enforcement. And it's a real role for people who are like, I want to keep track of Beverly Hills. You know, somebody you don't have to live in Beverly Hills to keep track of whether Beverly Hills is complying with their state housing elements. Um, so you can adopt a jurisdiction that you might think is disinclined to do its fair share. And um, I'm not saying that like, definitely somebody should target Beverly Hills, but like, definitely somebody should target Beverly Hills. Yeah. the HCD put out a link to an article today about Manteca and how, so Manteca is from where I'm from is up in the Central Valley of California. And a lot of the small agricultural towns up there are having to house people who are part of the service sector of the Bay Area, miles and miles away, but it's creating a housing market that is unsustainable for all the people who are working there. They're coming and living in 
these smaller towns that are also not wealthy themselves, they have farm workers to house, they have low-income folks to house themselves. And so it's putting stress on some of these smaller towns to have to house the people that these wealthier regions are refusing to house. It's a regional approach and it, it behooves all of us to get involved and to, to make sure that that sector is acting correctly. I mean, the part that sort of I w- want to make arguments often that will maybe appeal to the NIMBY sometimes where the thing that they are obsessed with is traffic and the fact that they have pushed workers to be unable to live in these communities is the driving factor in traffic. And if they would collectively just allow people to live closer to their jobs and where there is demand to live, then we would see traffic dramatically decrease. But they are so resistant to believing that no matter what the data, you know, then it's like, okay, how much do you actually go out there and try to get people who are hung up on their like, I mean, you know, I got a text message earlier that said that the hospital expansion in San Francisco was going to increase the risk of cancer. So there is a whole lot of crazy stuff happening over in NIMBY world that, you know, we could drive ourselves crazy trying to, I'll put a link to the tweet and text in question so that people can laugh about this, these NIMBYs saying that a hospital is going to increase your risk of cancer. But, but wow, I love that's, it. that's special. <laughs> Super special. <laughs> John, do you want to add anything before we yeah. say that? Just that, as, as Jess mentioned earlier, with talking about wages and, and the cost of housing, all these things are so interconnected. And there's this idea that with our dependence on car culture, which is a whole other podcast with multiple episodes, it's almost like you are less successful because you don't own a car. And so the idea that new development and more housing could mean less traffic is like, it doesn't register in people's brains because if you build more homes, then you need more cars. But the math on the logistics of mass transit and public transit are that the more people you have, the more efficient and cheaper it runs. And so the idea that, oh, well, we won't do this sort of urban sprawl, we'll we'll do dense residential stuff near transit and we'll just like add a bus line. Oh, well, the buses are for poor people. And so that's bad too. (laughs) There's, I mean, there's all of these like, like interwoven narratives about deservedness and what success is really defined as and uh, buy right homeless shelters, you're out of your mind. And it's just sort of like, we have to fundamentally rethink the way that we plan for our communities because while it works for some people and it works well for them, there's a huge amount of people that it barely works for at all, if not just is functionally broken. And, you know, if you do what you've always done, you'll give what you always got. And it's time that we make some changes. Awesome. All right. Well, let's end it there. Thank you guys so much. I'm so excited about all the work we're going to be doing on to the staff meeting. Can't wait. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank right. you so much, Laura. This was really great. Yeah, it was such a fun time. Thank you. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. I want to emphasize that this is a hard time for nonprofits. Yimby Action is continuing to advocate for the policy solutions we need, whether that's emergency funding for housing for those who need it most, or a pro-housing legislative package that will steer us towards an equitable recovery. We're producing great events, important discussions, and helping local advocates push policies of inclusion and housing for all. And if you believe this work is important and valuable, I want to really urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.